0: I'm excited about the opportunity to be with you this morning. It does not happen often, but we just determined that uh, during the Christmas season, we wanted you to be able to have as much live preaching up here in the venue as possible. I know Pastor Jason was with you last week as we began our series, A Time for Christmas. Last week, he covered a time for celebration. This week, we're going to talk about a time for salvation. And then on the 27th, a time for reconciliation. Well, a lot of people would say it's the most wonderful time of the year, but maybe not for all the reasons... In the iconic song sung by Andy Williams, by the way, that song was before my time. I just want to make that clear. Some of you in here, I'm not looking at anybody in particular, uh, that was in your time. Well, it is certainly a most unusual uh, season, an unusual time to celebrate Christmas in many places in our nation. Leaders are trying to cancel Christmas, or at least a religious expression of it. And let's be honest, it's not over health concerns long before the term cancel Christmas was coined, uh, there was definitely a Christmas cancel culture, a move to get the focus off Christ and to simply make this time of the year happy holidays. How many of you have been in stores recently or places of business recently, and that's what you hear, happy holidays, right? Well, let me just tell you, uh, you do not want to go anywhere with my bride that says happy holidays. Yesterday, we went to... uh, Oh, I don't know where all we went. Went to Walmart, went to Sam's, a couple other places, went to eat. And every person she passed, be it a bag boy, a stock person, somebody pushing a cart, she made a point to say to them, Merry Christmas. Christmas, Because that's what it's about. It's not about happy holidays. Well, we need to continually, um, because of the cancel culture toward Christmas, we need to continually... Uh, be reminded what God has done. And the message for Christmas very simply is stated, the message of Christmas very simply stated in Luke chapter 2 and verse 11. The angel said, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. That's what Christmas is all about. It's about the birth of Jesus. It's about God making himself clearly known by sending his son. When when Jesus came through him, we'd no longer have to wonder what God was like or what God had planned for us because God made that very clear in the person of Christ. And you know, we we know the Christmas story so well and we've heard it so much, we probably don't think too deeply about Jesus coming. We, We probably don't ask many questions and maybe we should. Have you ever thought that there are probably a lot of other ways that God could have forgiven our sin and made us right with him and given us eternal life why did God why did Jesus have to come and and live or or be born as a helpless baby why did he have to experience life as a human why did he have to to suffer in order to save us why now unless you have preschoolers why is a great question right? Mark Harris in 1993 wrote a very popular song called strange way to save the world if you know the song it's from Joseph's perspective, it's as if he's there, um, and and the Christ child has just been born, and he has all these questions. He asks, "Why me? I'm just a simple man of faith. Why him? With all the rulers in the world, do we really need another ruler in the world?" He asks about Mary, "Why her? She's just an ordinary girl." And he he finishes up his questioning by saying, now I'm not one to second guess what angels have to say, but isn't this a strange way to save the world? And indeed it is. But the ways of God, because we are finite humans intellectually, and and God is infinite, the ways of God can indeed seem strange. The prophet Isaiah said, speaking of God, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Paul echoed that same sentiment in the great doxology at the end of Romans chapter 11, where he writes, Oh, the depth of the riches of wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgment! How inscrutable his ways! His paths are beyond tracing out! For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? You see, God's plan for our redemption, for your redemption, for my redemption, God's, God's plan behind that first Christmas is unlike anything that, that we would have dreamed up. And we need to ask the question, why did he do it that way? Now, as you know, if you read the Christmas story in, in your home on Christmas Eve or Christmas morning, the Christmas story is actually only detailed out in Matthew and Luke. Mark does not mention the birth of Jesus at all. The Christmas story actually is in John. You may not recognize it as that, but in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, and then I'm going to drop down to verse 14, John explains what happened at Christmas. John chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word. That's Jesus. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John makes it very clear that Jesus was God. He has existed with God since the beginning. Jesus is the pre-existent eternal creator God. He said without him was not anything made that was made. In verse 14, that's the Christmas story, he became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The, the phrase made his dwelling among us, literally, if you were to translate it from, from the Greek to the English, is that he pitched his tent. Now think about that picture for just a minute. Imagine that you're, you're, you're camping with family or with friends, and maybe because there, there are many of you, there are several tents, and you're all on one campsite with your different tents, and John is saying Jesus came and he pitched his tent Right in the middle of your sight, He made His dwelling. He lived among you. And when you think about camping and camping in tents, especially, it's pretty up close and personal. And John is saying that's what Jesus did. Well, why? Why, why did He do that? Why, why did it happen that way? I want to remind you this morning of four benefits that we have of Jesus coming to live among us. Four benefits. Number one, Jesus came to demonstrate God in terms that we can relate to. I said just a moment ago that we are, we are finite and we're trying to understand an infinite God. Well, Jesus came, because of our finite minds and our incomplete understanding, Jesus came to bring God and the deep truths of God down to our level. He put the character and, and, the, and the being of God in a form that we would be able to understand. Now, let me ask a question here this morning. This is a very important theological question. Is there anybody in the room this morning that has never had baklava? Let me see your hands. You've you've never had baklava. Is that Ben? Stand up, Ben. All right, Ben, baklava, it's kind of a pastry dessert thing. It's it's got a bunch, I mean, a bunch of little thin layers uh, of dough, and, and in there there's some some uh, chopped up nuts sometimes pistachios sometimes something else and a little bit of honey and it's all kind of all blended together and layered in there phenomenal how does that taste to you i just described it to you. you you don't you don't understand so what would help you understand baklava okay come down here right there is a piece of baklava and there's also, there's also a fork. You don't have to wait till you get home if you don't want to, but that's, that's yours. Okay. That's yours. So take that, and, and you can taste it now. You can taste it later, but I want you to understand what baklava is. And, and by the way, I hope when you taste that, you really appreciate it, because last night at about 10 minutes after 8, you know, I live way out. At about 10 minutes after 8, I realized I had not gone and bought any baklava, so I had to make a 45-minute round trip for that $3 piece of baklava. <laughs> It was a great sacrifice. Yes. Similar to the sacrifice that Jesus made in coming. He came. So, so Ben could understand baklava. He had to taste it. He had to experience it. Like the psalmist said in Psalm 34, 8. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Well, now Ben is going to be able to understand baklava when he hears the word. Jesus came so he could understand uh, the person and the character of God. In John 14. Jesus is is near his departure. He's explaining to his disciples what's going to happen. He's explaining that he's the way to the Father. You probably know John 14, 6, where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he's explaining that to the disciples, and he says to them, look, if you know me, you know my Father. Well, Philip, I don't know, maybe Philip was a little bit dense. Philip was one of the disciples, not the Philip in the room, but Philip was a little bit dense. and, And Philip said, hey, Jesus, look, Let's just get down to the bottom line. Just show us the Father. Jesus, all we need is for you to show us the Father. And I imagine Jesus kind of chuckled and he said, Philip, you've been with me all this time? Listen, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. That's why Jesus came, so that we could see the Father. And if we see Jesus, we're able to, to see and know all that we need to know about the Father. Now, you could say, well, Jesus is not physically here like it was then. No, but we have a phenomenal eyewitness account that enables us to know the person of Jesus. And in knowing Jesus, we know the Father. Let me, let me mention just three things about God that I think are important to us that we know and that we see through Jesus that he explained about the Father to us. So first of all is the the power of God. We can't begin to comprehend how incredibly powerful God is, but we saw some demonstrations of the power in the life of Jesus. For example, feeding of the 5,000. With five loaves and two fish, he not only fed, and by the way, you know when scripture says 5,000, typically it's just a count Of the men, the heads of household. So with 5,000 men, plus the wives, plus all the children that were part of that household, Jesus feeds them with five loaves and two fishes and has how many baskets left over? Twelve. Thank you. Who said that? Good job. 12 baskets left over what about jesus walking on the water what about jesus having complete dominion over nature and that he could tell the the wind and the waves peace be still and they immediately obey his voice what about the raising of the dead the 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 woman from nain who was they were actually in the funeral procession on the way to bury her son who had been dead and they're on the way to bury her son and what does jesus do interrupts the funeral procession imagine that happening today I mean, if you were in a funeral procession and some guy comes up and begins to interrupt that procession, what are you going to do? Hey, come on, man, a little dignity here. No, Jesus interrupts the procession and raises her son from the dead. Jairus's daughter, Jesus raises her just by taking her hand. He raises her from the dead. And then what about Lazarus? Lazarus, he just spoke the word. Now, you see a couple things in his raising of Lazarus. Not only the power he has over nature, and specifically over death, but you see the same power you see in creation where God just spoke and it came to pass. That's how powerful God is. All he has to do is speak, and Jesus demonstrated the power of God. Jesus also demonstrated for us the love of God. It's incredible when you read the account of his time with the disciples how incredibly patient he had to be with them. He loved them so much. He's incredibly patient with all the disciples. Peter, what about Judas? If you go back and read the account of the betrayal, when Judas betrayed Christ, Jesus continually on that night, also before them, but on that night, you can see specifically in scripture, he continually was reaching out to Judas out of love, hoping that Judas would repent and change his ways. Jesus' love is demonstrated in his encounter with people like Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was pretty much the lowest of the low. In Jewish society, he was scum because he was a tax collector, turncoat, a traitor on his own people. He became wealthy off the backs of his own people. And yet Jesus had incredible love for Zacchaeus, even went and dined in his home knowing that people would speak things about Jesus and say things about his reputation. What about his love When you think about the woman caught in adultery, that they came and brought that woman to him and she should have been stoned according to the law, and yet he turned the tables on her accusers. One by one, they left. And then what does he say to the woman? Here's a woman whose sin, she's been caught in the very act of sin, certainly not the first time, and her sin was going to cost him to suffer greatly and to die the most horrible form of death known to man at that time, crucifixion. And what does he say to her? Where are your accusers? Oh, they're all gone, sir. Well, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. He wasn't saying your sin doesn't matter. He told her she needed to repent, but he didn't hold her sin against her. He demonstrated incredible love for her. What about the fact from the cross? Jesus prayed about those who were putting him to death, those who had tortured him. He prayed for them, Father, forgive them. In Jesus, we see the power of God and we see see the love of God on display. Ever been to a foreign country where you didn't know anything of the language and you didn't know anyone who knew anything of the language? I remember my first trip, and this has probably been 25 years ago, going down to Mexico to begin our work uh, down in Mexico. And there was a guy named Carlos Ictor. Years ago, Carlos Ictor was a worship pastor here. And Carlos was with the IMB at this point. And Carlos and I were going down there, and Carlos got in the front seat when we arrived. He got in the front seat with a pastor. I was in the back seat, and I would occasionally have to go, hey, man, what's going on? Because I couldn't make heads or tails out of it. Now, I've learned in all those years of going to Mexico and Peru, I've learned enough Spanish to get me in a whole lot of trouble. But back then, I didn't know a word. Well, just as I needed, I, I was desperate to know what was going on. I needed Carlos to explain things to me. Jesus, in his coming, took concepts of God that were like a foreign language to us, and he became the translator for us. So, Jesus has come not only to be the translator, not only to communicate what God is like to us, but secondly, Jesus came to identify with us. Hebrews 4.15, the writer of Hebrews says, we don't have a high priest, he's referring to Jesus, we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin what's he saying well we know that jesus came what we celebrate at christmas is is the birth he was born as a helpless baby he limited himself to a human body think about that he had to be fed his diaper had to be changed. He had to grow through childhood and, and the turbulence of adolescence or the awkwardness of adolescence and into adulthood. And, and in that process of being made a human and, and growing up in a human body, he experienced all the things that we experienced. He got weary. He got tired. He got sick. For 33 years, Jesus felt everything we felt. And it says he, here in Hebrews four fifteen, even that he was tempted. Without sin, but but he was tempted. So Jesus demonstrated to us that God understands us. He understands the struggles we go through. That's why the psalmist was able to say in the 55th Psalm that you could cast your burdens on the Lord. Why? Because he totally gets it. He understands your burdens. He understands the struggles. You ever been in a point in your life and you're really struggling and and someone, maybe a well-meaning friend said to you, I know how you feel. But you know that they can't possibly know how you feel unless they have walked where you have walked. Listen, when Jesus said, says to you, I know how you feel, he knows how you feel. He understands every struggle, every difficulty that you face. And so Jesus communicated to us that not only can we know God, but also, he, he can and he does know us. God is transcendent. He is so far above us, but yet he willingly, instead of just being transcendent, he willingly made himself material, became a person, so that he could know and understand all that we're going through. Jesus does understand. He does know. He gets it. The third thing we see in why John 1, 1, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, Jesus came to show us how to live. We're to live in a way that pleases and honors the Lord. Well, what's what's the model for that? How do we do that? Romans 12, 1 and 2, Paul said, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Don't be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. What, what is Paul saying? Look, we're supposed to be different. We're supposed to have a different mindset. We're not supposed to look like the world. We're not supposed to act like the world. First John 2, 6, whoever claims to live in Jesus must walk as Jesus walked. We needed a, a pattern or a model for that, and Jesus demonstrated that. You know, Jesus taught that we're supposed to love our neighbors, and Jesus loved his neighbors. They were the very people who wanted to kill him, but he still acted out of love for them. Jesus said we're to pray for those who persecute us, and from the cross he did what? He prayed for those who persecuted him. Jesus said that if you're going to follow me, you need to be willing to forsake everything, even your own family. What did Jesus do? He forsook everything. He forsook heaven. He didn't hold on to the opportunity to be God, but he emptied himself. For us. So Jesus has demonstrated what God's truth should look like lived out in the flesh. He he demonstrated what it looks like to be transformed, to be a a living sacrifice. And that brings us to the fourth thing. Jesus not only came to reveal reveal God, He not only came to identify with us, He not only came in order to show us how to live, but Jesus came, and this is the most important thing, He came to be the sacrifice for us. God decreed the payment for the sin of mankind was death, but God can't die. Only a man and a perfect man could represent man and receive God's prescribed punishment for sin, which is death. Philippians 2, Paul said, Though he, speaking of Jesus, was in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form he humbled himself becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross what's happening here well jesus in coming and living among us and being willing to go to the cross he put himself in submission to the Father. Remember, Jesus was co-equal with the Father, co-equal, co-eternal, co-existent, but he willingly put himself in submission to the Father. He obeyed God, and his death was part of God's plan. Over the, the manger was superimposed the shadow of a cross. He was born to die. But don't miss this. Jesus didn't just obey the plan of God, but Jesus also took part in bringing that plan to fruition. He didn't just sit back and, and, and let it happen. He was fully involved in the process. The plan for Jesus to die was premeditated. The plan for Jesus to die was God's pleasure. Listen to what, what Isaiah says in Isaiah fifty three ten. It was God's will or God's pleasure to crush him. And the plan for Jesus to die was Jesus' own willing desire. Ephesians 5, 2, Paul says, He gave himself up as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. You remember what Jesus said about himself in John 10, down around verse 16, 17, 18? Jesus said, hey, look, uh, no one takes my life from me. No one takes the life of the shepherd. The shepherd willingly gives it up. Jesus didn't get caught up in this plan, and it got out of control, and he ended up losing his life. No, he willingly lay down his life for you and for me. Think about this. God loved us so much, he let us be born knowing we would reject him. I wonder why God, after Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, I wonder why God didn't just close Eve's womb. When man became so evil that God decided to destroy the earth by flood, he only spared one righteous man and his family. I wonder why God ever even allowed the earth to be repopulated. You think he didn't know we'd get back to that same disgustingly evil point? But God loved us so much he let us be born knowing, knowing that we would reject him. And then what about Jesus? What about his part? Do you know that Jesus not only facilitated the plan of God, Jesus himself planned his own sacrifice. Go back to John 1, verse 3, where it says, not anything was made that was made apart from Jesus. That means that he planted the tree from which his cross would be fashioned. That means that he put the iron ore in the ground that those nails would be made from. It means that he put Judas in his mother's womb. Jesus set up that political machine that, that would condemn him. At, at birth, when Jesus was born, a death sentence was pronounced over him so that for us at death, a life sentence is pronounced for us. He conquered death for us. Look at John eleven twenty five. 25. This is at the death of Lazarus, Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And that's a question for us as well. Do you believe this? Christmas is about not just a baby, that's just the prologue to the story. It's about Jesus coming to save us. And we must not lose sight of that. And the problem for many of us that are gathered here week by week is we have known Christ long enough that we have forgotten about the effects of sin. We've forgotten what it was like to be, uh, before we were set free from our sin, we've forgotten what it's like to be lost. Let me give you a few quick reminders this morning. For the one who's without Christ, there's no peace. Isaiah 26:3 You will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. Romans 15:13 May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. There's no purpose no fulfillment in life for the person who's apart from Christ. The psalmist in Psalm 139, 16 said, all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Paul in Ephesians 2:10 10 said, we're his workmanship in Christ Jesus created for good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Well, you can't fulfill God's plan and purpose from your life apart from Christ. So there's no purpose and there's no fulfillment in life. There's no hope if you're apart from Christ. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 12, those who are separated from Christ are without hope and without God in the world. Listen, I've had that conversation a whole lot the last couple of months as we have done. I can't even tell you how many funerals around here the last couple of months. And almost without exception, people will look at those who are grieving a lost one and they'll say, clearly they have a relation with Christ because they could not do this. They could not have hope apart from Christ. And they could testify that to you. Apart from Christ, there is no hope. The person without a relationship with Christ has no security in this life. Thank God for us that Jesus said that if if you're in my hand, I'm in the Father's hand, and nothing, nothing can snatch you out of the Father's hand. But the person without Christ has no security. The person without Christ is under judgment and under wrath, and they are condemned. John 3, 36, John said, Whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. Paul, in Romans chapter 2 and verse 5, because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. And then that wrath leads to what? An eternal death. An eternity in hell, not only suffering physically, but separated from God. Jesus in John 5, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. And then later in that same chapter, those who have done what is good will rise to live. Those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. We forget how desperate our situation and condition was apart from Christ. That needs to remain fresh to us. We need to remember you know, in, in, the, in all the evil and, and craziness of the world we live in, most of us probably long for Christ to return soon. But if he does, if he comes soon, what about those who don't know him? Week before last, if you're reading through the New Testament with us, week before last, I think it was on Friday, we started Revelation 6, and that was the beginning of the judgments that are coming And you've read through this last week, some more of that. Let me let me just remind you, and you might want to turn there. Let me just remind you out of Revelation six what is coming for those who don't know Christ. The church, those of us who belong to Christ are gonna be raptured before the tribulation starts. But listen just to a few of the things here in in Revelation six. The Lamb opened the seals, the seven seals. And behold, first seal, there was a white horse. Its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him. He came out conquering and to conquer. He had a bow and no arrow, meaning this is a political conqueror, probably the Antichrist. He opened the second seal. Out came a horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. That's war that's going to come. Phenomenal, massive war like it's never been seen before. Third seal. The rider, uh, a black horse, the rider had a pair of scales in his hand, and I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius, that's a day's wages. A quart of wheat w- would get you one meal. One meal would cost you a day's wages. A quart, or Three quarts of barley, that's three meals for a day's wages. Do not harm the oil and wine, meaning there's going to be this incredible famine. Even if you can spend your entire day's wages on wheat or barley, you're not going to have oil to make anything with it. You're not going to have wine, nothing to drink. Fourth seal, Pale Horse. The rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. They were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, with famine, and with pestilence and wild beasts. That's Pestilence and wild beasts, that's the plagues and the attack by wild beasts that is going to follow all of this war and all of this famine. The fifth seal refers to the, the, those who've been martyred during the tribulation, asking God, when is this going to come to an end? Uh, the sixth seal, verse 12. A great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth. That's from all the dust and all the ash. The moon became like blood. Listen to this. Imagine how frightening this would be to experience this. The stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. In other words, lots of stars going to be falling to the earth. The sky vanished. It literally rolled up like a scroll. Every mountain and island was removed from its place. And and look what happens. The kings of the earth, the great ones, the generals, the rich, the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in caves among the rocks of the mountains, calling on the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne from the wrath of the land. For the great day of wrath has come. Who can stand? You know what was happening? They were so frightened that rather than be killed uh, or or face the wrath of the Lamb, they would rather be killed. They would rather die. Now, that's just a small taste of the incredible horror that people left on earth who didn't know Christ. That's just a small taste of what they're going to experience, of what's going to fall on them, and then they're going to spend an eternity in hell. This morning, being reminded of the Christmas story is not just about the baby in in the manger. That's just the prologue. Christmas marks... The coming of a Savior, a Savior we desperately needed because of our destitute condition. And my challenge to us this morning is let's think clearly about Christmas. Let's not get caught up in in all the worldliness around Christmas. Let's think clearly about Christmas, about the gift of God's Son. And because God gifted us with his Son, we owe him a debt of gratitude. And most importantly, as we think about Christmas and what God has done, let's think about those who don't know about that gift and our responsibility because we've been blessed to be a blessing and to share that gift.